We welcome each of you back to Senior Moments with Bob Johnson. If you've listened to our previous aid podcast installments, you undoubtedly have come to appreciate your host's genuine interest and vast expertise in all things historical. What you may not appreciate is the fact that he continues to study, read, and add to his massive fund of knowledge. Consistent with that theme, he speaks today about another historical event. We are all quite aware of the devastation, loss of life, and the horrors involved in World War I. Few of us, however, appreciate that simultaneous to that war, the world was in fact at war with another combatant, one that was unseen, seemingly unstoppable, and even more devastating in loss of life. Bob speaks today about this calamity, the mysteries surrounding it, and its historical impact on our world. It is again my pleasure to present your mentor and host, Bob Johnson, with Episode 9, entitled, Secrets of the Spanish Lady. Well, I suspect that our audience, as well as uh, myself, are a little perplexed and uh, intrigued by the title of today's uh, talk. Just what is or who is the Spanish lady? Interesting that you should ask that question because I really plan to uh, talk about it a little bit later just to keep people interested. Uh, if you think, guys, that you're going to get a, a racy story about a woman of uh, questionable uh, ethics, Uh, and morality, you're going to be doomed to disappointment. The Spanish lady is not somebody you would ever want to meet. And I'll tell you about that in a moment, but it's a little historical perspective, if if I may. Uh, Way back in the late 1930s, when I was just a little kid, stand-up comics were having a wonderful time with a very short little joke, which uh, never struck me as being very funny, but the Uh, One man would say to another man, hey, who was that lady I saw you with last night? And the second man would say, that was no lady, that was my wife. Well, that used to be a knee slapper, uh, a rib-tickling tickling, uh, humor back in 1980s or 30s, and I'll bet you're glad you didn't live then because I don't think it's very funny. But at any rate, uh, we're going to talk about a different lady, the Spanish lady. One more historical uh, perspective here. I suspect most of the people listening have heard about the sinking of the Titanic, a steamship, in 1912. As a matter of fact, Hollywood has done about five movies on it. It was a terrible maritime disaster when that uh, ship hit its iceberg, and over 1,200 people died. And uh, I think most people have learned a lot about the sinking of the Titanic, even though none of us were born when it happened. Okay, six years later, there was a terrible health medical tragedy worldwide that killed a hundred million people. It was known as the Spanish flu, aka the Spanish lady. Now, how many of you are highly acquainted with all that happened in uh, 1918 and uh, part of 1919? 
probably not nearly as many who know about the Titanic, and yet the difference between a thousand people dying on the Titanic and a hundred million dying worldwide in a uh, in a pandemic of this sort is is a quite a, quite an interesting matter. Most of what you're about to hear comes from a book I read recently, which I felt was so filled with information that hardly anybody knows today that I felt it would be important to uh, to do this podcast. Could you uh, tell us the name of the book, uh, Dr. Ivy? Yes, it uh, is The Pandemic of 1918, Eyewitness Accounts from the Greatest Medical Holocaust in Modern History by Catherine Arnold, copyrighted in 2018. Let's uh, set the scene of uh, the when this pandemic arrived on in uh, in our world. Back in 1918, uh, long about January, February of that year, the World War had already been on for three years. It had another, almost another full year to go. It was uh, killing uh, hundreds of thousands of people. In fact, uh, uh, the Arthur says that the World War One killed 38 million people. The whole situation in the world was very different from what it is today. Every, uh, just about every nation in Europe was at war. Uh, the battlefields were just covered with suppurating corpses of people who died in combat. And uh, there was uh, so much of this going on that the governments decided to suppress this new, suppress news of this new affliction that was seemed to be coming from nowhere and affecting so many people. And uh, as the initial phase of this influenza affection uh, died out early in uh, the spring of 1918 and everybody thought it was over, then there was a second phase that came during the summer and that was the worst one. That was killing people all over the world in great droves. And uh, then the last one came right about the time of the armistice in November of 1918, uh, when groups of people got together and uh, managed to uh, infect each other with this highly contagious disease. And it never really died out until almost exactly 100 years ago, the summer of 1919. And... uh, the world was so stricken by the effects of the war that uh, history just didn't do a good job of recording this tragedy. This was a human tragedy that changed world history. And I'm not going to keep in suspense any longer. Let's talk about the Spanish flu and the Spanish lady. Uh, Spain was uh, one of the very few countries that was not at war in World War I. And so the governments were not trying to suppress news of this influenza outbreak, which uh, in England and uh, America and France uh, was felt would be help destroy morale uh, if it were known that uh, many of the soldiers on the front were dying not in combat, but uh, because of influenza dying in bed. So Spain allowed their newspapers to uh, go wild. The king of Spain, Alfonso XIII, managed to catch the flu and uh, the newspapers reported it widely. Uh, then uh, the cartoonist kind of took over, I guess some with a morbid sense of humor, and uh, some cartoonist in Spain designed a, an icon of the Spanish flu by describing a tall, 
a lady dressed in black with a death's head but looking a bit like a prostitute and provocative and uh, carrying castanets and uh, leading uh, people to uh, fall into her clutches. Uh, this highly infectious disease certainly made it easy for this lady to bestow her favors and uh, to infect an awful lot of people, even though she was strictly an icon and a cartoonist's idea. Let's talk about influenza for a moment. In today's world, uh, we, we get flu shots to avoid getting it. It seems to attack the youngest and the eldest people uh, most seriously for most people in the prime of life. Uh, modern influenza, influenza attack uh, uh, gives you a little bit of a fever and uh, you may even take to your bed for a few days and you lose your appetite. But after five or six days, it's pretty much over. And you say, gosh, I'm sorry I had that. Many, uh, many of today's adults have had the flu several times during their lifetime. And uh, it's only when they get to be very old that it becomes a very serious threat to their continued health. Now, the flu or influenza is certainly not new in uh, mankind. We can go way back to Hippocrates in the year 412 BCE, who reported on what sounded very much like an influenza outbreak in Greece. And uh, all through the uh, ages, we had, of course, the Black Death, which was not influenza back in uh, 1348 and another major attack in 1605. But presumably, most of these were not flu attacks. But the name influenza, I'm told according to this book, came from a, an Italian idea that it was influenced by the stars. And influenza is an idea that is a Spanish word for an influence. It's interesting that I think most of us uh, probably know a little bit about the Black Death Plague um, and less about the Spanish Lady. Which was the most devastating in human life? Well, during the uh, uh, Black Death, uh, that was understood to be a form of bubonic plague which would, had come from uh, China on the fleas uh, who were infesting rats who were on the ships that were beginning to handle the east-west trade. Uh, bubonic plague killed uh, people in great droves. Many of them thought God's uh, wrath was uh, uh, had descended upon them for having uh, done something wrong. Uh, and uh, there, it was thought that was the, the end of the world was at stake. But then all of a sudden it died out and uh, the rest of the world continued. It did destroy a large percentage of the world's population, but starting to compare it with the Spanish flu, uh, you kill 100 million people in the world of 1918, you have killed a pretty good percentage of the world's population. That being true, uh, that number is remarkable, 100 million deaths. That was, I believe, close to 5% of the world's population at that time. That's very true. Uh, it's interesting that it's very, it was very difficult in 1918 to get a real good uh, hold on the actual numbers of people dying from the Spanish flu because it was worldwide. There were African villages that were nearly wiped out, but there wasn't anybody around keeping track of how many people lived or died. The Soviet Union or, uh, or Russia, which was in the middle of a revolution, uh, had a lot of people die from it. But there were so many people dying 
from starvation at the time or dying when the the communist reds and the uh, uh, capitalist whites were fighting each other that nobody was really keeping track. And uh, in England and in the United States, as I mentioned, the government just tried to suppress knowledge of what was going on because they felt it would be destructive. Uh, interestingly enough, the author of this book even says that the bond drives that were being run in the United States to get bonds to finance the war were putting people in uh, infectious range of each other in big groups. Occasionally, the government would try to stop big group meetings, but that was kind of tough in wartime conditions. Some of the interesting information that you provided me uh, includes the fact that 500 million people worldwide were affected and one out of five lost their life. That's incredible. It certainly is. Uh, Doctors and nurses were falling in droves as well. Many doctors were trying to help people, and one of their patients would cough or sneeze, and a few days later the doctor would die. And this was true of the nurses as well. And the medical profession was already way overstretched by World War I. There were many theories that people had as to why this was going on. Uh, Some of them thought that uh, the poison gas being used by the Germans was a problem. Uh, Some of them blamed the Germans for releasing this infectious material by uh, submarine on the east coast of the United States. Uh, Others felt that uh, it must be all those bodies rotting in in no man's land uh, uh, that was doing it. And, of course, the Germans blamed the British and Americans, and the British and Americans blamed the Germans, and really, uh, really neither side had tried to start this dreadful epidemic. There were parts of China, I mentioned, that uh, record-keeping was very poor, and yet there were great numbers of people who died. So any number over 50 and under 100 million is probably uh, questionable, but uh, the the best, uh, the, the author of this book seems to have settled on 100 million plus as the number who died. Earlier, you mentioned that there were three distinct phases of this particular outbreak. And why do you think it eventually waned? Do you think it was by attrition, by way of the death of the carriers? And was there any evidence that what the medical or military communities did by way of intervention had any impact at all? At that point, people thought that the bacteria was the cause of the, uh, of the affliction, and uh, people were wearing surgical masks. The medical profession strongly recommended the wearing of surgical masks, which uh, were designed to screen out bacteria. They were not aware of the existence at that point of viruses, and that is what, uh, it's a virus that causes uh, the Spanish death or causes influenza. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, a virus is the Latin word for poison. And when that finally they realized that viruses were involved, then they were able to start doing something. But before that, wearing of surgical masks, which was really a, a waste of time, but everybody was doing it, was about the only thing that they could do. Nobody knows for sure why those three phases ended. Uh, uh, many times this has been true of other epidemics, that, uh, and in, that would include the, uh, the Black Death, that uh, all of a sudden it ended and nobody knew why, but uh, medical science continues to evaluate just what 
could have been the case. But the, the third phase was the, uh, the weakest one, and it died out during the spring of 1919 and uh, died out completely in uh, July of 1919. Well, obviously, the end point of this disease in many cases was death. But what type of symptoms led to that end point? It's awfully easy to think when we've had modern flu that, oh gosh, that wasn't much fun, but uh, we got over it. But the uh, Spanish flu was a very different animal indeed. In fact, some people still claim that it wasn't flu entirely. At any rate, the, uh, the symptoms are something, if you happen to be eating at the time, you might want to wait on this to hear the rest of it, because uh, explosive uh, vomiting and uh, projectile vomiting, and, uh, headaches, uh, very terrible headaches, high fever up to 105, uh, muscle aches that people de- de- explained as absolutely excruciating that they couldn't get rid of. And those who uh, had it for a few days and didn't die right away, their skin turned blue from lack of oxygen. Their lungs were filled with fluid. They, uh, their hair turned white. And uh, those who survived found that their white hair fell out. It took a while to get replaced. Yeah, many people uh, developed uh, a lot of fur on their tongues for reasons uh, no one quite understands. And people who had this usually uh, drove other people away with vile odors uh, coming from their, uh, their body. The uh, bleeding from mouth and nose was usually a sign that death was going to come because uh, sometimes it was quite profuse. Many times people developed delusions. They, they, they went to, uh, into uh, uh, their, their brains were getting fried with this high temperature. And uh, there were even cases which are described by the author of people murdering their children because they knew they weren't going to survive and they wanted their children not to have to lie in bed and die of starvation. Pregnant women were especially vulnerable. There was a, an eyewitness account in the book about uh, a doctor who uh, delivered a baby, and uh, shortly thereafter, both the mother and the baby died of this infectious disease, and then the doctor himself died not too much later. It was a really pretty horrible experience in life. Another reason why it was difficult to figure out how many people had died from the Spanish flu is that very often people would start to recover from the flu and then would get pneumonia. And uh, would they ultimately die of pneumonia? And it was hard to uh, uh, say just uh, which was which. But uh, those people who did recover uh, and uh, didn't get pneumonia went on to several years of extra fatigue and tiredness Uh, Many complained of that after having had the Spanish flu. Well, with this frightening devastation occurring, what were people's and government's reaction? Suicides became very common. The the symptoms of this terrible disease were so bad that many people were committing suicide. Some people committed murders. They just went out of their heads and started killing other people uh, around them. Hospitals were overflowing. Many of the hospitals in Europe were already overflowing with the people who were uh, being wounded in battle. But uh, around the world, even though there were no battles going on, that would include South America as well as North America and uh, other places, uh, the, uh, the hospitals just could not handle all the people who needed to be in in beds. Philadelphia was a particularly serious problem. Uh, uh, The the deaths in Philadelphia were so serious, so many 
deaths that the uh, uh, caskets uh, they didn't couldn't find up caskets for everyone they couldn't uh, uh, even dig graves for everyone. The city fathers finally decided to have steam shovels start digging ditches and putting the victims of this terrible disease in en masse uh, into the, uh, uh, these graves and then just covering them up. It just got to be too much to handle. And this was true in many parts of the world where be- uh, the dead were being thrown out. In Africa, for example, they were the gold mines had to close down because uh, uh, all of the workers were getting the Spanish flu. And there are examples or stories of uh, bodies uh, of people who died from it being thrown out of the trains going from here to there in the uh, mining countries. One of the interesting stories in this book is the uh, governor of Alaska decided that he was in a, uh, his country or his territory, uh, wasn't a state yet, uh, was in a perfect position to stop the spread of this disease coming into Alaska. Uh, there was nobody in Alaska that had the Spanish flu, and he got this idea. So he set up all kinds of quarantine arrangements at the borders. Uh, and at one point, he was uh, known to say, nobody's going to get into Alaska except the U.S. Postal Service. Well, <laughs> you guessed it. Uh, the, a, a mailman brought uh, the Spanish flu into Alaska, and it wasn't long before it was one of the hardest-hit parts of the world. Individuals tried their own techniques for trying to uh, stop the Spanish flu. Uh, one of the most popular was uh, to eat a lot of raw onions. <laughs> which may have had the unintended effect of keeping people who are infectious away because uh, most people stay away from folks but who've been eating a lot of onions. Uh, another uh, another one that uh, uh, was very popular, as I mentioned earlier, were face masks. The In the book, they tell the story of uh, uh, doctors uh, wearing face masks, nurses wearing face masks, which, which are doing no good because they were only designed to clear out bacteria. But whole villages were uh, sometimes ordered by the management of the village to uh, and the city to wear face masks. There was even one incident where a honeymooning couple confessed to their doctor that uh, even uh, when they expressed affection to one another uh, in various ways, they always wore face masks uh, seven days a week, 24 hours uh, a day. And then there was one African village where uh, a woman decided that uh, a lizard's leg and foot being worn around her neck would fit in, would probably keep the flu away. Interestingly enough, she was one of the few in that village who didn't get the flu. In the various communities where uh, wearing of masks was required, there were people who became known as mask slackers. They were people who didn't wear the mask, uh, and uh, they were considered to be unpatriotic and and very, uh, very bad people indeed. Uh, there was another place where there was a, a slogan, uh, which was, uh, according to the book, uh, Obey the Laws and Wear the Gauze, which is a, certainly a, a, a pretty fancy uh, way of saying it. But of course, there was a widespread spread spear. <laughs> A widespread fear, that's hard to say, uh, at the time uh, that uh, mankind might be absolutely wiped out by this terrible disease, which was killing one out of every five people who got it and leaving others uh, debilitated and uh, not really able to cope with the world around them. There were many others who really were totally convinced that it was the wrath of God punishing the world for being at war with itself when there was no good reason to do so. 
In your research, did you find some human stories uh, of individuals that dealt with this disease? Actually, the, the author does a very nice job, and, and the, uh, the word eyewitness accounts uh, uh, in the title of the book really tells the story after the introduction. She goes on with, obviously she's not interviewing the people who had the Spanish flu, but she's uh, going through all kinds of documents, uh, looking for uh, uh, what people had to say uh, at the time, uh, and there are many interesting ones, a couple that come to mind, other than the honeymoon couple wearing, wearing the face masks. Uh, these other two are certainly more serious. Uh, there's one case of a young woman who was married in St. Mary's Church in an English town on Saturday. The following Saturday, her friends celebrated her funeral in the same church just one week later. Uh, another one which really did uh, tugs at my heartstrings was uh, the little boy in New Zealand. Uh, this place, this this plague went every place, including Australia and New Zealand. In New Zealand, this young boy went into a butcher shop and uh, asked to get some meat. Uh, and the butcher sensed that he didn't seem to know much about what he wanted. And he said, well, uh, do you know how to cook this meat? And the little boy said no. And the butcher said, well, talk to your mommy and daddy uh, about how to cook the meat. And the little boy said, well, mommy and daddy have been in bed for three days and I can't wake them up. So I've got to figure how to do something myself. I suspect that this uh, was a pandemic that was non-discriminatory. Were there any well-known uh, individuals affected? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, quite a few uh, who are well-known in the day and still well-known today. Uh, these are all people who survived. Uh, the, uh, the very first one was the premier of uh, England, Lloyd George, who played a very prominent role in the uh, later on uh, peace negotiations that went on. And the, as the author points out, the, uh, the morale of the British people would have been very much destroyed uh, if, uh, if Lloyd George had, been, had died from this. Uh, other examples would be uh, the Kaiser himself, the Kaiser of Germany, uh, came down with the, this and, and survived. Uh, other people uh, uh, well-known are Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was involved with the, uh, in a fairly low position in the Navy Department at that time, long before he became president, uh, and, uh, and he survived. Think how different the world would be if Franklin Roosevelt had, had perished in, with the Spanish flu. Mahatma Gandhi, one of the key people in the future of India, came down with it and survived. Uh, here in the United States, uh, the Groucho Marx <laughs> uh, came down with it and, and survived. Uh, John Steinbeck, the famous author. Uh, Walt Disney, the uh, man who uh, uh, did so many cartoons that are so important in American uh, life, came down with it and survived. Well, here we are a century late, later, and certainly we have to have answers. What caused this? I wish I had an answer. There are many opinions, and a little later on we're going to talk about the research that was done back in the, uh, in the early uh, 20s, just a few years ago, uh, once they figured out that a virus was causing it. Because just like so many other things, they can't be absolutely certain how various epidemics uh, begin or why, whether they came from. I mentioned the theory, uh, which is, uh, has no uh, basis for 
believing that the German submarines were spreading it. Uh, the uh, suppurating bodies on, uh, on, in no man's land, very often they were left there for a long, long time because nobody dared go out to get them. Uh, the poison gas, uh, which uh, mustard gas particularly was being blamed because that affects the lungs. And uh, if your lungs are full of fluid uh, and you've just been exposed to mustard gas, you're going to think that's maybe causing the, uh, causing the flu. Many, uh, many theories go to, and this happens to be the one I, as a, as a layman, that I would certainly support the most because it seems to be the case in many other kinds of uh, flu, such as the bird flu and the swine flu. They have found that when a flu virus moves from a pig or a bird to a human being, it takes on a new level of virulence and becomes much more devastating to the human being than it was to the animal. In the Far East, people lived back in those days and probably still in many cases today, live very close to their animals. Many times, if you've seen some of the old movies like The Good Earth, they had actually the, the oxen uh, living in the house with the people, and uh, the chickens came and go and uh, came and went, and uh, the pigs uh, very often came into the house, and people live very close to their animals. And so my particular theory is that I find the one most easy to believe uh, is the uh, the virus that causes the Spanish flu or any major flu of that kind jumps the species barrier and when it does becomes much more virulent. People uh, during the World War One uh, used to blame uh, Chinese workers coming to take on the working jobs to cover the jobs that were uh, uh, vacated by men who had to go fight in the battle. And uh, it's awfully easy to believe that that's where it came from. Well, again, 100 years later, does modern research, any advances that we have made in the medical field, give us any answers? Actually, the, the answer to that has to be yes. There's been uh, major, there have been major advances in uh, getting to the source of the Spanish lady uh, since, uh, since it happened and devastated so many people. The real key to much of this was the electron microscope because people said, what, what could be causing it? We can't stop it with our masks and that's supposed to stop bacteria. And it, the electron microscope brought to fruition what was many people were guessing or what many, many medical researchers were guessing is that there had to be something else which they called a virus, but they couldn't see it because it was too small. And the development of the electron microscope during the uh, uh, 1900s, which finally uh, came to the point where they could actually sit down and look at a virus, which some of them described as a nasty little beast, others described as a bunch of protoplasm with a few genes in it, uh, others saying, well, whatever it is, it slips through the, through the mask, so it's uh, uh, got to be pretty small. All kinds of uh, answers that the uh, doctors came up with, and frankly, they were trying to find out at first, how come this particular disease strikes down people in the prime of life, unlike most kinds of diseases which attack the young and the very old. And they finally came to the conclusion that one of the things that killed people was their own immune system. This particular virus uh, attacks the immune system to the point where the immune system, I guess you could say, overreacts and kills the patient. And uh, this is why people in the prime of life, life died. 
the better your immune system, the better for you. Or I should say, the better for your chances of dying from the flu, because uh, your immune system is what winds up uh, winds up killing you. Of course, much of the research in the late 1900s and early 20s uh, revolved around actually trying to dig up people, the bodies of people who died from the Spanish flu back in 1918 and 1919. And there were experiments uh, back in the late 1900s of digging up uh, people who had died up in northern Norway, uh, who had been buried in permafrost, and they hoped to find live virus there. There was another case in England of a man who died of, uh, and had been buried because of his prominence as a nobleman uh, in a lead-lined coffin. And they uh, felt that uh, this would have protected his body enough that the live virus might still be there. And the upshot of all that is that they did locate the virus that caused the Spanish flu and uh, were able to deal with the, just how you go about handling it. If it ever comes back again, we'll be in a lot better condition. Well, thank goodness that it ran its course. Um, but what does the future hold? Could we have a similar recurrence? Well, it's pretty likely that uh, such a thing may rear its head again, but we're much better prepared for it at this point, thanks to our doctors and our medical researchers. I think we're prepared to head that sort of thing off at the pass and uh, keep the Spanish lady at bay. We do have modern epidemics, Ebola virus, uh, uh, swine flu, bird flu, uh, Hong Kong flu, uh, all kinds of things like that. Uh, but uh, fortunately, we live in a time when doctors can solve these problems in ways that they couldn't back then. In terms of the Spanish lady flu uh, and its impact on the world, I have a few closing questions regarding the consequences of all of this. After the end of World War I, it's my understanding that the League of Nations was established as the first world organization. Is that correct? Yes, that's my understanding, yes. It was tasked, I believe, with coordinating and cooperation and control and prevention of disease worldwide as one of their uh, tasks. Is this, in fact, the predecessor of what has now become the World Health Organization and in the United States, the center of disease control? Well, the League of Nations uh, turned out to be a disappointment in many respects. Uh, I honestly can't speak to the uh, health implications of what they did, but uh, since the United States didn't even join into uh, uh, them, thanks to the uh, isolationist attitudes in Congress, uh, we just needed to wait for the League of Nations to come up with a World Health, World Health Organization, which I think has made some great strides forward for mankind. You mentioned the isolationists. Americans obviously were quite weary of war and illness and death at that point, and it would not be a jump to say that perhaps this led to a, a, a bigger fear of anything foreign, anything coming into our country, and perhaps leading to a greater isolationist movement. This might have even, I think, led to uh, fringe nationalist organizations rising, or uh, uh, I even read where perhaps the KKK became emboldened uh, under those circumstances. Do you think there's any truth to that? 
Well, the fact that uh, 550,000 Americans died from the Spanish flu certainly would uh, support the position you just mentioned. And I'm sure that Congress uh, uh, was influenced by the reaction of people to uh, foreign influences. Uh, the fact that it was called the Spanish flu might very well have affected a lot of people, and congressmen uh, do like to get uh, reelected if they can. Interestingly enough, uh, you mentioned the Versailles Treaty and uh, the League of Nations. And in our last podcast, I talked about Woodrow Wilson and the fact that uh, he stopped being the important international for, uh, force that he should have been. And I think that might have had something to do with the League of Nations uh, not passing Congress. Woodrow Wilson came down with the Spanish flu. He's one of the prominent people I didn't mention. And I don't think there's any question but that his uh, future after that happened probably had something to do with his decrease in influence uh, in the world and, and uh, nationally. You know, one might postulate that Germany being the nexus for war could be held responsible for this pandemic because of the actions that they took that necessitated war, which in turn set up the circumstances contributing to the spread of the disease. Do you think there was any such sentiment among the victors in their harsh treatment of Germany after the war? Hadn't really considered uh, that side of it. Uh, I think there's possibly uh, possibly the case uh, during the war. Uh, actually, bare aspirin was considered at times at at one time to be a spreader of uh, the infectious disease. Uh, because uh, Bayer was a German company, but uh, that since it's proved to be totally spurious, it's quite possible that uh, uh, some of the negativism that has developed uh, might have be attributable to that, and maybe it would have been a different world if we hadn't had the disease, and maybe people blame Germany for the disease. But uh, as far as I can tell, it's hard to say that Germany itself was responsible for the Spanish flu any more than the Spaniards were. Given the tragic battlefield loss of life, perhaps more sinister in my mind is the collective governmental and military suppression of the information regarding this illness uh, and keeping it away from the public. Can this happen again? I would hate to think it would happen again, but I have to say I think it could. It's just unfortunate that uh, in England they had a uh, Defense of the Realm Act, which said the newspapers could not say one word about the Spanish flu uh, because it would be considered to be destructive morale. And in the United States, there were uh, uh, suppressions of uh, various newspapers who started talking about the Spanish flu. So uh, it's entirely possible that... uh, Uh, That kind of uh, governmental influence could happen again. Uh, Certainly, uh, uh, Washington, D.C. would certainly have something to say about it if they felt that anything the newspapers could run during wartime would in some way impair our ability to win that war. They're going to do it. And uh, so I have to say, yes, it's unfortunate, terribly unfortunate, that uh, all of the warring countries suppressed the newspapers from saying what was going on, and they even let the people join together in bond drives and uh, uh, celebrations of the armistice in ways that didn't spread the disease much further than it otherwise would have been. Perhaps uh, social media, of which I find little 
positivity uh, is the one thing that could keep that from occurring again. <laughs> you may, I think you've made a very good point. I uh, have to say that I uh, never thought I'd sit in front of a microphone and say something nice about social media, but uh, I think you've made a very good point. With the enormous loss of life, again, as much as 5% of the world's population, one would think that this would have become an acknowledged staple in our historical education, and yet few of us are familiar with it. Why do you think that is so? I think that probably the conditions that followed World War I had a lot to do with it. People were celebrating the armistice after four years of a dreadful carnage throughout the world. Uh, people did not realize, I think, how many of the soldiers who died on the battlefront died from the Spanish flu instead of the bullets of the enemy. And I think uh, people just wanted to forget the whole thing, especially when it died out just Oh, a matter of seven months after the war itself ended, I think uh, people uh, wanted to forget such a bad thing and concentrate on what was supposed to be the recovery of the world from uh, this terrible war. Well, I, I certainly want to thank you. This was fascinating, and it has filled a, a great hole in my historical knowledge of something that uh, we all should be aware of because I think it uh, is a very important point of history. Well, it's, uh, it's been my pleasure. Uh, I certainly, uh, again, have to give tribute to uh, the marvelous work of the author Catherine Arnold in her book, uh, which uh, anyone who's interested in this phase of history would do well to take a look at. Uh, I think uh, I've got many other things I could talk about in this, having read the book, but frankly, I uh, feel a hidden urge to go out and get my flu shot. So if you don't mind, I'm going to take off. We thank you for joining us in our presentation of Secrets of the Spanish Lady. Much of today's factorial information may be found in the excellent resource book entitled Pandemic of 1918 Eyewitness Accounts from the Greatest Medical Holocaust in Modern History, written by Catherine Arnold in 2018. Our current music selection is ironically entitled I Can Feel It Coming by Kevin MacLeod and is available on Incomputech.com. Finally, we invite your comments and feedback regarding our podcasts, which may be forwarded through Senior Moments with Bob Johnson Podcast at gmail.com. On behalf of Bob Johnson, this is your plotting technician, Mr. Ivy, wishing you well and inviting you back for our next episode of Senior Moments with Bob Johnson. <laughs>